When Barbara Leverton pulls her tractor trailer onto the Bitter Creek turnout on I-80 in Wyoming, she doesn't expect to see what looks like a few trash bags in the distance. Nor does she expect to find that those bags are actually the nude body of a woman left beside the highway. Known as Bitter Creek Betty for the location she's found, or Rose Doe for her distinctive rose tattoo, this woman has remained unidentified since she was found in 1992. But with new technology comes new hope as investigators start to piece together her connection to another Wyoming Jane Doe and to the murder of Rose McCall in Tennessee. But will these developments be enough to give her her name back? This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by author Ginger Strand. Hey, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Um, you are our resident Canadian here, so I don't know how this question is going to go, but have you spent much time on the American highway system? Like just traveling by the highway? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've gone on like family vacations and stuff where we've used the American highway system. Okay. Mm-hmm. My dad used to throw us in the, the car and drive us like all the way from New York to like Colorado and Wyoming, like all the time when we were kids. So okay. I spent a lot of time on highway hours. You have a lot more than me and my yearly Florida drive. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the reason I'm asking is because we're going to talk about an unidentified woman today who um, was discovered by a highway. And so we're going to kind of dig into like her story, but also kind of into like how we perceive highways and highway travel in the United States and what it all means. Okay. I'm curious to see where this is going to take us. Okay. So on March 1st, 1992, about 4.35 PM, kind of setting the scene here, a truck driver out of Nebraska. Her name's Barbara Leverton. She pulled off on the Bitter Creek truck turnout off of I-80 in Wyoming. Okay. So is this like kind of a rural area or? Yeah. I mean, I kind of took a glance around Google Maps. It is pretty desolate out there now. Um, Now there actually is like a truck stop on one side of the highway, but like I'm guessing in 1992, like the turnout, which is kind of like a a pull off for truck drivers um, or anyone. I'm guessing it was like really pretty desolate out there. Um, So Barbara Leverton, she is out there. She's going to like switch out her fuel tanks. She's drinking her coffee. And what she sees kind of some distance away is what looks like um, some trash bags. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as she's observing this, her her thoughts are that like these trash bags have kind of like the curve of a body okay. to them. So what she does is she radios into another truck driver who is able to contact authorities who come out to check out what's going on. Um, And who they find is um, an unidentified woman who was given the name Bitter Creek Betty. So Bitter Creek for the area that she is found in um, and Betty just being a generic woman's name. And 
they find her down this like little embankment. She is naked. She has been there. They later determine like a couple months. Okay. So, you know, when her body is found, there is no identification on her, nothing that clues people in. There's some physical characteristics to her, but that's kind of it. Her story is reported the next day in the local newspapers. It is not front page news, which I think surprises a lot of people to learn that like finding an unidentified person would not be like top news of the day. Right. right. Why wouldn't it? That seems like pretty big news. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially, I mean, dealing with someone who's unidentified, it seems like getting it out as big and as quickly as possible would be the best bet of finding out who it is, right? Right. That is definitely not the case for her. Um, it's like several pages in to the Casper star. It's just really short articles about her body being found. When they find her, they find some clothing nearby, like a pair of pink underwear, a pair of sweatpants, um, she was wearing a gold ring on her left ring finger, and she had a gold necklace as well. But nothing, like, too identifying. They also find her body has a rose tattoo on her right breast. So this rose tattoo is going to prove to be, like, the like major key detail about her. It seems like from just, like, a regular person standpoint that having that ring might indicate that she's married. The tattoo might indicate that, like, she's got some marks that other people would recognize. It just seems so crazy that somebody can go unidentified with, like, these pieces that seem like if you go missing, those would be the things that would kind of lead to who you are. So Yeah, you know, I think those key identifying features just think like oh we just have to find the missing person with that tattoo everything will be like all the pieces will fall together right where where are all the people who knew this woman right so i also forgot to mention that she has a cesarean scar as well so she's a mom she has a child out there somewhere there's got to be people out there looking for this woman but right it's so sad to me when we start talking about these things and we hear of these women that nobody anywhere can say is missing and connect it. Mm -hmm. oh. So their initial look at this woman, so what happens is like her body's found, police are investigating, goes to the coroner to determine cause of death. There's evidence that she was sexually assaulted and there is also, the manner of death is pretty brutal. So I just want to like say it very quickly and succinctly but it looks like an ice pick of some sort it was inserted in her nostril and she was killed potentially that way okay right so this is a, a pretty brutal murder it's horrifying mm -hmm. so we've got this woman they start looking for who she might have been who might have done this to her and there's really like few clues. So they first identify her as potentially being Native American or white. It's hard to tell because one of the things is, is like after that amount of time of your body being out, exposed to the elements, they're just kind of going on, on best guesses. Okay. They 
are unable to find any leads at all. Her story is not making much news anywhere in Wyoming. They eventually are able to trace her tattoo. Her tattoo is their key identifying feature for her. It's of a rose and, you know, between the stems, there's some Chinese calligraphy. And this is like the only major break in the case for a very long time. They are able to trace the tattoo to a tattoo artist working out of Tucson, Arizona. So they can trace it to the tattoo artist, but we still don't know who this woman is. Correct. Isn't that like surprising? It is continuously shocking to me. The tattoo artist knows some things about her. He says um, he doesn't remember her name at all, but that he does know she is what is called a leaper, which means that she kind of uses like long haul truckers to like move from place to place. Okay, so we don't know where she's from at all, like from that, just, so he, that's the only thing he knows about her. That is like the main thing that he knows about her is that she's like traveling around going from like truck to truck to truck. Is this a common thing, these leapers? Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the ways that we can think about people being mobile or getting across the country is just like traveling this way. Like, how do you get from one long distance to another? Now, the highway she's found on is the second longest interstate in the country. So, you know, it's going all the way from New Jersey all the way to the West Coast. Who knows where she was picked up on? Like, did she like kind of intersect it in some other manner? We don't know. And so when people are traveling like that, do they ever travel by cars or other people too? Or is it strictly just always with truckers? I imagine, like, if you're thinking about what's the quickest, most efficient way of getting from place to place. But I think with, like, long-haul truckers, like, there's, like, an ease of of movement. And plus, like, quick timing too. Like, right. they are trying to get from one place to another pretty quickly. Well, maybe you might trust them maybe more than just somebody in a car because you're associating them with their company or with what they're doing, maybe. Yeah, like you're all on the road together kind of thing. This is really where her story comes to pretty much a standstill. So it's like 1992. And then after that, they discover this tattoo. And then there's just really nothing else. Nothing more for her. No. So she gets entered into the National Database of Missing and Unidentified Persons um, in 2011, close to the time that, like, that starts up. Um, It's important to note that cases don't always make it from the coroner into any larger databases. Okay. So there could be as many as, like, 40,000 unidentified remains cases throughout the country, but the amount that are in the national database is much smaller. Okay. Like proportionally, do we know how much smaller? So the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, which is the nationwide system to kind of track missing and unidentified people, there are about 14,000 unidentified people in the database at the moment. So 14,000 in the database, but there are about 40,000 total. Right. And it's important to note that that's just a guesstimate because no one knows for certain. Because for the longest time, most of those cases were just held with local policing agencies or with the coroner themselves. 
Okay, so we don't have like national numbers of this usually. Like it's just what is kind of pieced together. Yeah, so like what we can kind of glean from from records. It's likely that this is going to change long term. So in December of 2022, it was signed into law what is known as Billy's Law. Okay which is a law that is um, designed for national databases like this one to connect more together and for those cases that are held like an incentive to get them put into a national database so that connections can be made. Okay, so a really good overall system is being put in place. Right. I mean, it took like, I think about 18 years for this to, long battle to yeah. to happen. But it's good now that Billy's Law, which was started by a family of a, a missing person, you know, they worked to, to really push that forward. So hopefully we're in a state where things are going to change. So for our missing woman, Bitter Creek Betty, this national database did not exist at the time that she went missing, but she was entered into it later. There were no like clear matches with her case, although she at this point has been compared to hundreds of cases. Okay, so work is being put in on her, but it's just not coming up with anything conclusive. Well, some developments have happened, but I'm going to backtrack a little bit okay. here. So she's discovered, and in April of 1992, another woman is found in Wyoming. Okay. This woman is found along Interstate 90, so a more northern interstate that also connects through Wyoming. She is known often as I-90 Jane Doe or sometimes Sheridan County Jane Doe. Okay. She shares some characteristics with Bitter Creek Betty. One difference is that Sheridan County Jane Doe is pregnant at the time of her murder. Okay. And... Do we know how she was murdered? Was it similar to what happened to Betty? Uh, so less of a clear murder situation here. Like, so we know that she was murdered, but her cause of death is not determined. Okay. We also know, though, that she was sexually assaulted. So it is looking similar to the other case. Yes. Okay. So we've got some similarities here in terms of, you know, more rural locations alongside of a highway in Wyoming, kind of similar age ranges. One was pregnant, one wasn't, one had had a child. So we've got like commonalities. Very happening. close by and within a close amount of time. Yes. But like Bitter Creek Betty, there were not many leads on her story at all. Okay. So we don't really get any further with her than no. what, what both, we have with this. Both end up stalling out. So when they found the remains, were they also similarly disposed of as the first, as Bitter Creek Betty? Was it also a garbage bag? So in this one, she is still wearing her clothing. Okay, so that's different. Yeah. In Wyoming, they start the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation, and what they're going to do is gather together sort of a cold case unit comprised of, like, FBI, scientists from the crime lab, special agents from the DCI, to sort of look at what cases they'd had in the past. And the first case they pull, or the new director pulls, Steve Woodson, is the Sheridan County Jane Doe case. In this process, because this is now much much later, they are able to discover that the DNA profile of the suspect of Bitter Creek Betty 
matches the DNA profile of the suspect of Sheridan County Jane Doe. So the suspects match. Right. So like based on the DNA that is found on their body, those two are matched. So, so whoever was with them in those final hours was the same person. Right. Okay. So they know that they're connected in some way, but they don't know who that person is. Okay. In this process as well, they start taking a closer look at the DNA that they have. So it's important to note that when we're talking about older cases, the DNA evidence or the ability to run DNA was either non-existent or kind of like minimal. So these happened in 1992. Yeah. So what, what year is it now that we're starting to actually connect them and go back and, and look those cases over properly? So we're starting in around... 2012 and sometimes even like 2018 to kind of develop more technology okay so they're able to identify that the two have had an encounter with the same person and then they're like well let's take a like closer look at the dna evidence that we have from these two women to see what we come up with and so they sent what they had to a laboratory called Parabon, which has done amazing things in missing and identified persons cases. And what they are able to do is build a profile of what our Jane Doe might have looked like and where she might have been from. Okay. Are, the, are we talking now, which Jane Doe are we talking about? Bitter Creek Bitter Betty. Bitter Creek Betty. Okay. Yes. So anyone who's taken an at-home DNA test can often have access to like random like little quirky things that your DNA tells you. So like for instance, um, my DNA tells me that I am very fair skinned, which checks which you out. are. Checks it, out. It does. <laughs> That's why I sunburn so easily. Uh, it also says that I am likely to have brown eyes, which you don't. Uh, which I do not. Okay. Right. So. In the grand scheme of things, your lottery should have come up brown eyes. I should have, but, yeah. So so they can kind of tell those things with... With this kind of more... So it, some of it is accurate, like your fair skin, but then some of it is not accurate, like your brown eyes. Right. So I'm imagining a laboratory like Parabon, which has more technical resources. Okay. Right. Might be able to make better judges of it. But they are able to come up with a more clearer look at Bitter Creek Betty and who she might be, they determine that she is of South American and European descent. So not Native not American, Native. like they had originally believed. They also are able to do some like ancestry and kinship analysis with her. And the same with Sheridan County Jane Doe. So they've been doing work on both of their cases. Progress is being made. Now, Amy, what is the kinship part mean does that mean that they can actually find people that are related to or yes. or ideally in an ideal situation but they haven't with them or have they so one important thing of note is that um neither of these jane does are listed in the database at this point okay so it is highly likely at this point they have identified both of these women but this information has not been released publicly yet Okay, so this might be farther along than we're thinking. Yes. Than what we know. Than what we know, yes. Okay. So investigators probably know. It's kind of reassuring. A lot more than we know. Okay. Right. Um, which is like these moments where you see them taken out of the database and like you know something has happened, right? 
Right, which is yeah. nice because so it always makes me so sad when there's no, nothing that leads up to who, who these people are. Right. We'll be back in a moment. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. One of the huge breaks in this case also comes from the identification of their murderer. And just to make clear, Vanessa and I never mention murderers' names on here, and we're going to continue that tradition throughout. So we are not naming this man. But one thing that is important to know is that this man's DNA that has been connected to both of these Jane Doe's was also connected to another case of a woman who was murdered in 1991 in Tennessee. Her name is Pamela Rose McCall, and she was 20 weeks pregnant when she was found at the side of the road. So for sure now we, we know that he has at least three victims. Right, which moves us firmly into serial killer terminology. Right. So now, do we know what he did? Was he a truck driver? Just he was curiosity. a truck driver. Yes. yes. Okay. Right. So when they go back and kind of dig into this woman's case, they are able to link all the DNA to like these three women. So they know, they know it's the same person who's done it. And they essentially end up trying to get DNA from a potential suspect by following him and collecting his items from the trash. Oh, no. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a great way to do it. <laughs> they, like, follow this man through Walmart. Who are they? Police. Okay. Yes. Not just some random So there was strangers. no there was no reason for them to stop him and ask for his DNA, so they were just trying to get it themselves? Is that... Right. So they, they don't have enough evidence to actually get, like, a warrant for that yeah. kind of thing? So Is they that... have to, like, confirm... Then it's him. I mean, they do, like, seriously confirm after. Okay. Right. um, From the actual person. But at least they're trying really hard, like, with this. uh, I was imagining just somebody else out there, like, going through this guy's trash. Like a random vigilante. Exactly. But, okay. So we'll let the police do their work. Yeah. So the police were, were doing the work, tracking him through Walmart, collecting his trash, that kind of stuff to just see if they're correct that their assumption that this guy is the killer is the killer. And it turns out he is. So he's a long haul truck driver and had committed these murders 
while he was on the road. Uh, because they knew the identity of Pamela, they prioritized her case, meaning they made sure that he went back to Tennessee to face trial for her murder because her parents are still alive and can actually get justice for her. And because the other two at that point were unidentified with no known relatives, they went in that direction first. Okay. So how does it usually work though, if nobody comes forward to claim these unidentified individuals and then something like this happens where where we do know who the killer is, but we still don't know who the woman is. So there's no family rooting for them. Like how does, does it still happen the same way eventually? Sometimes yes. And sometimes no. So like, sometimes you'll have like a, a killer who's tried for only a number of the crimes that they committed and not all of them. Even if there's DNA evidence on that body. Sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes no, they'll go back and like, you know, send the killer from one state to another to face trial for all of them. Do you feel like that's something that's going to change once that database is in place? Do you think then maybe? I don't think that it will necessarily affect that process. No. Okay. Um, I think sometimes they make those decisions based on like cost and ability to prosecute a crime. So if they know that they're going to get a conviction, then following through might be a good idea. If someone's already received, like, say, life or the death penalty or something, they might not pursue it. Right. So it would only be beneficial for them to really pursue it if it's going to add time to that person's, what, what they're serving. There's a lot of factors in place, but that's, like, one of them. Okay. Well, that makes yeah. sense, though. Yeah. So what we have is a serial killer who murdered at least three women while he was on the road. And even if I said his name to you right now, you would not know it. It is not a name that you have ever heard, which I think is interesting because I think that serial killer culture and the concept of the serial killer, like we have like names in our head that pop up. Right. And it's always the same few and it always seems to be the people who have a lot of people attached to them. Like, do we know if he ever, if, if the three was all? Not all, but you know what I mean. Like, did that number ever go higher than three? Is it much likelier that it's a higher number? We don't know. Okay. Um, it could be a higher number. It might not be. I mean, the reality is, is like, um, according to Ginger Strand in her book, The Killer on the Road, there are as many as 25 serial killer truck drivers currently in prison in the United States right now. Wow. Yeah. Makes you think differently about just stopping at a truck stop who you're going to run into. No, well, I'm just, you know. Yeah, but like, yeah. I think I think that's actually one thing. It's like one of the things that Strand's book covers, which I think is like really brilliant, is kind of our concept of being on the road and who's at risk on the road, right? And like her book really brilliantly captures like the shift from seeing like the American highway system is like this like modern invention of like traveling from place to place and like being able to see things and how quick it is and how how much it will help like capitalism to like very swiftly seeing the highway as a place of danger and like a place you don't want to be right 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 especially for some of these women that are traveling alone it seems so easy to get away with it though if you're 
constantly traveling and you're picking up people that aren't on anyone's radar. Yeah. I mean, I think like that's the key of it. Like what ends up happening is like this fear is really spread to like the message is being sent to the wrong people. Right. So the FBI in 2009 starts what they call the Highway Serial Killings Initiative. Oh, they have a name for it. They have a name for it, right? Where essentially what they end up doing is plotting a bunch of murders that are either on or in close proximity to highways to kind of take a look at, see, like, do we have like a national level problem? Um, and their findings were basically, oh, like, oh, we do. Oops. Ooh. All right. What ends up happening is like all these news articles are released at the time, like basically saying like, we need more information. Families are going to be on the road this right. summer. When the reality is... But families aren't the ones targeted, are they? No. So, like, what ends up happening is people who are already at risk. So, we're we're talking about people who are transient, people who are moving from place to place, people who are unhoused, uh, and sex workers, right? Those are the, the people. Right. It would be more people, like, actually frequenting those truck stops and staying there for a prolonged amount of time than just that family gassing up or grabbing a burger. Like that's not really going to be the people. And and it will it will be somebody alone. Right. So like what Strand says and the FBI basically say is that like they draw this conclusion that like by the way, like being a truck driver actually would be an ideal profession for a serial killer largely because there are a few major things happening here. Like we have like mobility. People are able to move long distances in a relatively short amount of time. And then the other thing is the anonymity, right? Like right. people who are just moving through, that includes both sex workers and truck drivers and other people who are using trucks as transportation across the country. And so like that increases the risk and the possibilities. Right. And it seems like one of those things where like the possibilities discovered can lead to more right right and you know the reason i said like you would not know this guy's name and in fact if i told you the full list of all 20 something of those truck driver serial killers and you probably won't recognize them is that like they're really unremarkable in many ways like they're not kind of going to be mythologized in like the American sort of psyche in any way. Right. And now is it also possible that the the people they prey upon are are kind of in that category as well? Right. So you yeah. have like a non-notable person picking up somebody who nobody is watching out for. Right. And that combination just seems horrible. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like this mix of things that are happening. And so, you know, are highways dangerous places? Yes, highways are dangerous places for one, truck drivers, two, people who are using those areas quite frequently, and three, like people who are sex workers who have anonymity and who are not like well known. So the sex workers, hitchhikers, leapers, yeah. is it leaper? leapers? Leapers. Yeah. Leapers. This is new to me, so I'm just learning this. Um, 
so those all of those people basically are just they can just vanish right and so and so it'll easily. be a while before somebody notices right or if they do if they do if they do so when we think about like either of these two women um and why someone might not know there are a lot of reasons people might not know and so i mean i think like some of the like bigger scale answers to to the this issue is to actually raise awareness that it is an issue like right. who is at risk and also to like reduce how anonymous both of those things are right so i know that there's always the debates going back and forth about like legalizing sex work that seems like it would be one of the best way to protect some of these women right like if we could have like a community of care right right that like people are looking out for them right it still won't help with the runaways or the, or the people that are hitchhiking or, or traveling but for that particular group which i'm sure is pretty prevalent at like these truck stops it would at least protect one group of people right yeah we moved in that direction we would be in a much better place for keeping those people safe right and the truck drivers themselves like you said they're also at risk but they usually are tied to whatever company it is that they're working for. So it seems like if they themselves, something happened, somebody would be looking for them. Right. I mean, yeah. So they have... Eventually. Eventually. Like... Right. Yeah. So, you know, it looks like... It looks like in positive news that these two women are likely identified. And I hope that their cases come to trial and they can get some justice. Right. What do we know about his the victim that was identified? Do we know where she was when she was picked up? Um, what we do know about the woman who was found, Pamela Rose McCall, was that she was 20 weeks pregnant when she was found at the side of the road. Um, there were some skid marks near her body that indicate that there was a tractor trailer there and that she was strangled to death. Her mom described her as being free-spirited. She often hitchhiked and kind of lived a transient lifestyle. So she was found about 12 to 24 hours after she was murdered. Uh, they also found some semen on her pantyhose, indicating that she was also sexually assaulted. It took a month to ID her. Um, they had sent her prints out to all the police departments they could find, and they were able to find her family. So do we know where Pamela came from? So her obituary says that she was born and had family in Iowa, and that she lived in Virginia. And then she was found in Tennessee? Correct. So even though she's from Virginia... I'm guessing that the police that were mostly involved in her case are the ones where her body was found. Right. So in this case, the Spring Hill police are in Tennessee are handling her case, right? But as you can see, if we just take Pamela's story and kind of look at it, like she's, her family is living in Iowa, right? So the people who would know who she is are there. The people who she knew in Virginia are there and she didn't really have 
It doesn't seem connections in Spring Hill, Tennessee. That's just where she was found. And so if we go back to that kind of concept of like cases only being held and looked at by a coroner in the place where someone's found, and then we kind of put that alongside truck driving and like leapers or hitchhikers or sex workers, we can see like connecting databases is like incredibly important to actually finding out what happened to people. Right. So it's incredibly like big progress for them to be able to combine them finally. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's how hopefully more stories can be put together so we can find more identities if there's increased access to those databases and commitment to submitting stuff to them. Yeah, I'm curious about, about how many cases are going to be solved or how many are going to be linked once they, they do that. Because in these cases with these with the truck driving serial killers, now that we know that that's an entire thing, and they're going through so many states, like once that's connected, I'm wondering if they're going to find even more or if they're going to find even more victims connecting back to some of these people. Yeah, ideally, that's what happens. I mean, the the database that the FBI put together of the killings along highways, like they identified hundreds of bodies that are are found in this way. Are they all going to be serial killers? No. no. Are a number of them going to be like accidental or some other causes um, or single murder situations? Absolutely. But hopefully... Adding all this information together just is a benefit to solving these crimes. Yeah. Now having this discussion, it kind of really puts into perspective, like how many movies or documentaries about women who've, who've been found somewhere, how many of those start with a body being found along a highway? Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is, again, like what we're we're talking about is like a lot of those movies it's like our car broke down on the side of the road and and it's not that those don't happen um but the risk is much higher for people who who are anonymous in some ways never travel alone is that what we're learning here <laughs> <laughs> well we're, de we're no. definitely going to have some some podcasts where it doesn't work out for people who are traveling together either so oh no you're never safe <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking you guys are safe i bet most of the time <laughs> that might not be the message it might not be a good message have nightmares tonight guys you're all at risk it doesn't matter if you're in paris but really only if you're a sex worker <laughs> Or if you work at a bank. Or if you work at a bank. Don't work at a bank. Okay, so at this point, I feel like we've put, like, a lot of heat on truck drivers. I, I grew up around a lot of truck drivers. Um, a lot of my friends have dads who are truck drivers. I know that, for the most part, truck drivers are not going to murder us. How do we reassure our listeners that? Right, right. Yes, we don't want it to sound like we're saying long-haul truck drivers are murderers full stop. So there are like 3 million or more truck drivers in the United States. And in prison, there are 25 serial killer truck drivers. The reality is, is like, it is such a fragment of that population. 
variety. You know, yeah. So we're definitely not saying that at all. Um, you know, and truck drivers, that is like one of the hardest jobs. Like, and one of the most important, honestly. Yeah. And, and a dangerous job at that. So like, I think like if we move to a place where we reduced anonymity for both truck drivers and sex workers and other people moving along the highways, like in a transient manner, I think that would just benefit everyone. And really, if you would like to know more about the issues of violence and the highway system, I highly recommend Ginger Strand's book, Killer on the Road, Violence in the American Interstate. It's a great look at all of these kind of topics that we touched on in more depth. And now we're going to listen to Amy's poem, Battle Lines, about Bitter Creek Betty, read by Ginger Strand herself. Ginger Strand is the author of one novel and three books of narrative nonfiction, as well as many magazine features. Her book, Killer on the Road, Violence and the American Interstate, tells the entwined stories of the American interstate highway system and the serial killers who haunted it, looking at how America became more mobile and more violent at the same time. Battle Lines Unidentified woman discovered March 1, 1992, in Bitter Creek, Wyoming. I once kissed the ruby flesh of a hummingbird held against a rest stop sign on the day before I left my body in ice at the curve of a prairie road. In this life, our blood is where we make a fist against anger. We tattoo roses to our chests, memorials to love and lost fortunes. What we sell is ourselves to the fluttering of breath when the darkness is a memory of miles drifting past windows of light. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.